Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8, we've been, uh, really for the last couple of months now, we've been in the book of Galatians, just walking, by, walking through it verse by verse, uh, and so we're continuing on, and like I said in the past, this will take us right through Easter, so we've got about another month in this book, uh, but uh, yeah, it's been really good. I've really enjoyed this uh, study, and hopefully, for, yeah, we'll just keep going today. Verse 8, formally, when you did not know God... You were slave to, slaves to those who by nature are not gods, but now you know God, or rather are known by God. How is it that you are turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted all my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so. You would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. How or Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I'm perplexed by you. Well, in this portion of the letter of Galatians, we can really begin to see the pastoral heart and the concern that Paul has for the churches in Galatia. I mean, he has, he's been somewhat harsh with them, and even in this, he's, he's a little bit, but there, there's a shift in the tone, right? I mean, at one point in the letter, he actually says, you foolish Galatians, like, who's bewitched you? But this, he switches, and he's like, I, I'm perplexed by you. And he calls them brothers and sisters. He refers to himself as, as someone who's in the midst of childbirth, right? There's this, this longing affection that he, he has for them. And it begins to come through in, in his reminder to the Galatian of the relationships that, that they've had, right? He says, he says that the reason that he even showed up in Galatia and began to church, or preach the gospel in the different areas and form these churches is because of an illness that he had. And when he had this illness, it wasn't a burden for the churches in Galatia, but rather they welcomed him as an angel or as Christ himself. And I love the line that he uses to describe just how affectionate the churches were, just the care that they showed. He says, I can testify to the fact that you were caring so well for me that you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Which just 
I mean, it sounds a little macabre, right? Like, it's a little bit of an odd statement, but, but I think we also have to recognize that we've got some odd idioms in our language as well, right? Be like, dude, I love you. I love you like a brother. I'd give my kidney for you, right? Like, we have these really strange ways of communicating our fondness for one another, and it seems like that type of idiom exists even at this time, right? This idea that I've, I love you so much that I would sacrifice something that brings me joy, some, you know, the, the the ability to see like something like that, I would sacrifice that for you so that you could be well and have it. Now, some scholars actually say like that, I, that, that phrase, I would tear out my eyes and give them to you, is an idiom to communicate just how much you care for another person. Others actually hypothesize that Paul's ailment, because you got Paul talks of this ailment that he has here in Galatia, but he also talks about this thorn in the side, in his flesh in 2 Corinthians. And some say that that thorn in his side might be, you know, opposition or some sort of demonic activity. Uh, others say that it is, a, is an, a chronic illness that Paul carried out, because Paul seems to talk a lot about being ill. And so some hypothesize that his ailment that he had when he was in Galatia had something to do with his eyes. And so when he says to the churches, I can testify to the fact that you cared for me so greatly that you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me, was essentially him saying, you loved me so well that you would do anything to heal me. Like you were working for my benefit. Either way, whether it's an idiom around self-sacrificial love or it actually is pointing to Paul's illness, what Paul is doing is highlighting the relationship that he had with the churches in Galatia and that this relationship was filled with mutual care and love. And now Paul is left wondering, what in the world happened to it? Because Paul left. And in Paul's absence, some other folks came into the churches and began to preach what Paul says in chapter 1 was a gospel that is no gospel at all. The idea that if you were to truly follow Jesus, you still had to adhere to the law. That if you were an uncircumcised Gentile, that you needed to become circumcised. That you needed to adhere to the dietary restrictions. That you needed to follow the special festivals and feasts and days. And Paul is trying to communicate to the Galatians that these agitators, as he calls them, are leading them astray. And this whole section right here in chapter 4 is Paul essentially saying, listen, listen, remember how we loved one another. Remember how we cared for one another. Remember how we were both lifting each other up. I lifted you up, you lifted me up. But, but these folks, these folks that are driving a wedge between us, they don't want to lift you up. They simply want you to lift them up. And so Paul expresses his concern for them. Now, I, I want to I talk a little bit about that concern and then, and then we'll, we'll camp out somewhere else for the rest of the message. But I just want to say that this part of Galatians is one that at its current point in, in my life and in the life of our congregation, and I really identify with Paul. Like there's, there's something like, as over the last couple of weeks, as we've prepared for the, the time of renewal this summer, and as we've been doing the work with the renewal team about what that's going to look like and making all these plans, and then on, on the personal side of that with our family as we've been planning you know, all the things that are going to happen during my sabbatical, like, there's this piece in which I identify with what Paul is saying here. And the reason is, it's like 95% of me, and I'm just going to be brutally honest 
if I can be brutally honest here in church for just a minute, like for 95% of me is unbelievably excited about this summer. Like just, yeah, okay. Then there's 5% of me that's anxious. And, 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 and if you just, just stay with me here, I'm, I know that why I'm anxious is completely all about me and my stuff, right? Like I can honestly say it's not you, it's me, right? But, but my anxiety rests in two parts. Number one, uh, it, th- and this is more selfish, my anxiety is that I will go away, and we're, gonna do, we're doing all this work to set, us, set up, and the elders are doing amazing stuff, the deacons are doing stuff, the renewal team, like leaders and people are stepping up all over the place, and it's fun and it's exciting and cannot wait. Like as we said with the renewal team that was up here a couple of weeks ago, like if things go back to the way that they were before the time of renewal versus the after, like then we failed, like if we just fall back into the old rhythms. So my fear is, my anxiety is, is that we'll go away, all these new rhythms will be entered into, and... And you all will figure out you don't really need me. Like, honestly. Or, or connected to that idea is, like, we're going to bring in someone, and they're going to be the regular person. Like, so there's some consistency up in the pulpit, so you're not getting somebody every single week, right? And so there'll be some consistency up here. And then when I come back, you all be like, oh, oh, oh we really like that other guy. Like, he was good. Like, we're glad you're back, though. Like, that's my fear. Like, if I'm just being complete, like that, but only like 5%. And that's, to- that's my stuff, my insecurities, and all of that. So that's, that's one, one reason I'm a little bit anxious about going away. The other reason that I'm anxious is still about me. It's not about you. It's about me. But, but it's to recognition that I've been here for this summer will be 11 years. And I've worked hard to preach and to teach and to pastor in a way that is that is open-handed, that is curious, uh, that, that is hopefully humble and, but, and, 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 and speaks the truth, but is also filled with the willingness to enter into the tension and the mystery that's pointed at hope, but is intellectual and not accessible, like on and on and on. Like these are all these values that I hold about being a pastor and, and, and preaching. And my fear is that after 11 years of work, like somebody will come in and undermine all of that, Right? And, and we'll begin to undo some of that, that, that have hopefully began to create like a kind of ethos here over the last decade or so. And again, I don't think that's going to happen because the elders and the deacons and the renewal team, they're working really hard. But, but my fear is that there's a great quote uh, uh, in a book called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. Gilead is a book uh, written from the perspective of an old congregationalist preacher named John Ames. And so John is reflecting on life and on his life as a pastor. He's got this great quote in there. Uh, if I'm going to put that quote up on the screen, this isn't working. Go to if that first one there. There it is. It says this quote, Two or three of the ladies in his church, two or three of the ladies had pronounced views on points of doctrine, particularly sin and damnation, which they never learned from me. I blame the radio for sowing a good deal of confusion where theology is concerned, and television as worse. You can spend 40 years teaching people to be awake to the fact of mystery, and then some fellow with no more theological sense than a jackrabbit gets himself a radio ministry, and all your work is forgotten. I do wonder where it will end. Facebook has, I mean, it hasn't ended because we have Facebook now. I'm just saying, like, and so I identify with that kind of quote. Like, there's just this, like, what's going to happen? What's going what's gonna to go on, right? So, so as I read this 
passage this week, and we've been doing all this work, like that's what's been in the back of my mind. And so I identify with Paul. I identify with his, I came and I preached the gospel to you. I helped you see your freedom in Christ through grace. And now these people come along and they're driving a wedge between you and the gospel and between me and you. Like what happened? Why are you returning to the law? It's doing nothing, but it's enslaving you. Look again at what Paul says in the first couple of verses, in chapter uh, 4, verses 8 through 11. We'll read those again, and this is where I want to spend the majority of our time. It says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, now how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. So Paul, Paul here is saying something that's really, really profound and I think something that we need to hear. He says to the Galatians, listen, you are turning back to being enslaved by gods, forces, this is the language that he uses in, in, verse, in verse 9. You see, he refers to these gods as forces. And, and, and that idea of forces is a bit ambiguous, right? Uh, these are the same forces, though, if you were to look at chapter 4, verse 3, right? We're just a few verses beyond it, but because there's a week in between, sometimes we can separate these. But just in verse, in verse 3, he calls these forces elemental spiritual forces of the world, Right? And he's saying, you all are turning back to these. So in particular, it sounds like he's speaking to the Gentile Christians, right? You're turning back to these elemental spiritual forces of the world, these, these quote-unquote gods. Now, to really make sense of this, these forces and what they are, we've got to remember the context in which Paul is writing. He's writing somewhere around 50 AD, right? So ancient time, uh, pre-scientific revolution. So the world is made up of these elemental forces in the mindset of the ancients, right? They don't see the world and say, like, the world is governed by these natural laws, as we would call them, like the law of gravity, the law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, those types of things. They're saying, like, those, they don't understand those worlds, they got those laws, they have no context for them. Instead, what they understand is that the world is governed by these elemental forces, right? Earth, wind, Fire. And yes, I remember the 21st of September. Like this, these are the forces that they feel the world is governed by. And these elemental forces of the world, these big, big things, not, mac not these micro atoms and molecules, but these big things, each one of these is governed by a particular God, right? So if you're a farmer and you need rain, you want the elemental forces of the world, this rain, wind, storm. You want these things to be on your side. You're going to pray to the God that governs weather. So you're going to cry out to Juno or Jupiter. If you're a sailor and you want calm seas, you cry out to Poseidon. If you are going into battle, Zeus or Mars. If you're going to cry out, or if you want love or fertility in your life, you're going to go to Aphrodite, right? Like there's these elemental forces of the world. Fertility, wind, rain, you know, all of these things. They're governed by these pagan gods. And you have to go to these gods and appease them in some manner to get the result that you want. And this 
is a kind of enslavement, right? You are constantly tied to these gods. You cannot get away from them, and they make demands on your life. You have to live a certain way, sacrifice certain things, give up certain things, act a certain way, continually come to them to get what it is that you need. Because if you don't, if you try to walk away, if you try to express some sort of freedom from them, then you're going to anger them and they will cease to act on your behalf. All right. So for those of us who live post-scientific you know, post revolution, so a couple thousand years, for those of us who have grown up in church, we've heard lots of of talk about idols and pagan worship and all of this sort of stuff, and we know not to do that, and we understand that those gods and that behavior has an enslaving principle to it. But this is where Paul's going to throw a curveball, and we've got to read it in context, not just at sort of this, this, this surface level, right? We've got to remember the whole letter. Because in verse 9, Paul does in fact accuse the Galatians of turning back to these weak and miserable forces, these elemental spiritual forces of the world. And again, you read that and it sounds like pagan stuff. But Paul uses the language of, you are in danger of turning back. Now think about the con- but we've got to think about this in the context of the whole letter. As Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, is Paul worried that they are worshiping Jupiter, or Mars, or Aphrodite. I mean, he's worried about that, but is that why he's writing the letter? Is that the whole purpose of his letter? To warn them about the false nature of pagan gods? No. The whole point of the book of Galatians, the reason that Paul wrote this book is because people have been saying, no, 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 it's not just about the gospel in Jesus, but rather you've got to adhere to the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the dietary restrictions. You've got to observe Sabbath and all of these festivals in days, right? That's Paul's primary concern is that they're going back to the law. And so Paul isn't, isn't concerned about them turning to paganism, but rather to biblical legalism. So this is why I think this section, these three verses are very important and they relate to us. Because what they communicate is that trusting in your morality and your ability to practice good religion, biblical as it may be, is just as much enslavement as practicing paganism. Or another way to say it that's perhaps a little more clear and and a little bit more blunt, a religious person can be just as lost as someone who has no faith. A religious person because this is, right, this is what Paul's saying. Like you're, you're practicing religion, you're just turning back to the law, and that's enslaving. That's the elemental spiritual force. That's the miserable force. A religious person can be just as lost as a person with no faith. And, and I think it might even be safe to say that a religious person runs the danger of being even more lost than a person who has no faith. And I know that sounds crazy and maybe hyperbolic, but I think the reason that it's safe to say that a religious person could be more lost than a non-religious person or a person who has no faith is because the religious person thinks that they're okay. 
A religious person is like, yeah, I'm covered. I'm good. I show up on Sunday mornings. I read my Bible. I serve. Like, yeah. And remember what Jesus says about this, right? He says, yeah, yeah, I never knew you. Yeah, 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 but didn't we cast out demons and do miracles in your name? Yeah, yeah maybe you did. I, I don't know you, though. Yeah, yeah, but didn't we show up on Sunday mornings? Didn't, didn't, didn't I give some money? Didn't I serve? Didn't I read my, like, didn't I do all those things? Yeah, I don't know you. That's the danger. That, that's the thing that should cause us to sit up. Like This text isn't for the pagan heathens out there. This text is for us to sit up and to examine our lives and to examine the motives and to ask the serious question of, am I trusting in my morality and in my ability to obey and adhere to the laws of God over and above the grace of Jesus that is what truly sets me free? I mean, it's very, very clear, and I feel like I'm saying this every single week, but but if Paul doesn't tire of it and he says he commits to only knowing Christ and him crucified, then I'm just going to keep saying it over and over again. Salvation comes not from what we do, but from knowing Jesus. And not knowing about Jesus, but actually knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus in the ancient Hebrew sense of knowing somebody. Right? That idea that there is an understanding, there is an intimacy, there is this... This closeness. There's this firsthand knowledge of. There's this being known by. Right. And this, is, this being known by is actually what Paul says. I love what Paul does in verse 9. He says, um, well, let's just, well, he said, I got it now. He says, but you know God, right? He says, but you know God. But, or now that you know God. But now that you know God. And then, he, and then he interjects. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Let me back up a minute. Rather, now that God knows you. Rather that you are known by God. And this distinction, I mean, it sounds like semantics, right? Rather, you know, but now that you know God, oh, wait, wait, wait. Rather, you are known by God. I mean, that sounds a little bit like we're playing some semantics here. But it's actually profoundly different. Because the relationship that we have with God is not depending on us knowing God, but is dependent upon the fact that God knows us. And understanding that, that key distinction, that our relationship and our salvation is based on the fact that God knows us, is actually what guards against the slip into idolatry. If you want to put the next quote up there, Richard Lovelace uh, says it like this. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. Next slide. Their insecurity shows itself in pride a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. What he's, this is what he's highlighting. He's highlighting the fact that when we lose sight of the fact that we are known by God and begin to trust, in both our ability to keep the law, but also our ability to know God. Like our ability to know God. And we trust in that. 
we run the risk of running into a kind of idolatry that enslaves. Let me kind of flesh that out to see what, so we can see what it looks like. Imagine you have a powerful, intimate experience with Jesus in which you can clearly see God's love for you. The gospel becomes real. There's this true relationship that is formed between you and God. There's interaction, there's communication. You feel gratitude and joy. You experience love and grace. Maybe you have it at a camp experience like a camp challenge. or Maybe you go on a mission trip or maybe, maybe you're on a personal retreat or maybe you're just in church on a Sunday morning and the Holy Spirit washes over you and knowledge of God consumes you and now, now you hear the gospel in a way that you hadn't heard it before. And so you have that experience, and it forms something in you. You cling to the gospel. But then over time, the feelings associated with that experience begin to fade. The passion that was ignited from that experience begins to drift. It begins to dwindle. The fire whittles down to a few embers. And you just begin to feel like, ah, I, just, I just feel like I don't know God like I used to. Or, God just doesn't feel as close to me as, as God used to. And it creates this, this slight sense of insecurity within you. Like, what does this mean about me? What does this mean about my faith? Am I, am I doing the right things? Has God abandoned me? Did I do something? Is this real? Was I fooled? Was I just caught up in the moment back there? Like, what, what, what's going on? And so we begin to do these things to try to change our feelings about, this partic- about our experience of God, right? We, we, maybe we change churches. Maybe we go to a cha- church with a different kind of worship style. Maybe, maybe we begin to read our Bibles more. Or we get into a book study. Maybe we serve more. Maybe, may, maybe we just making sure that we are in church every single Sunday. Maybe we're going on retreats. Maybe we're, we're going to conferences, right? We're doing all the things that we feel like we should do in order to increase this feeling of intimacy, this, this feeling of of passion and experience, right? And, and, and maybe, maybe all of that action, maybe we don't consciously know that it's tied to some insecurity and anxiety we have about our relationship with God, but rather it's just, it's connected and it looks like, on the outside, it looks like this, this perfected image of what a good Christian, whatever that means, a good Christian ought to do. And, and maybe even to make ourselves feel better, feel less anxious because of the insecurity that we feel, we begin to take pride in our knowledge, how good we know the Bible, how thorough our understanding of theology is. We Maybe sometimes, maybe it's unconscious or maybe it's conscious, maybe we scoff at those who doubt or we try to get them to not doubt and teach them that doubt is bad because we don't want them doubting because if they doubt, then not. Then, then maybe that means i got to acknowledge my doubts, and rather than acknowledge my doubts, I'm just going to make sure that they don't feel their doubts. We argue with folks over minute aspects of doctrine that really don't matter in the long run, but we do these things because we want to prove that we're right, because by feeling right, we don't feel anxious any longer. And we're doing all of this because of those deep-seated, maybe unconscious feelings about 
our relationship with God. Like, do I know God enough? Does, does, am I doing the right things? Why don't I feel the passion and the zeal like I used to? And Paul says, listen, listen, that, that return to the, 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 the need to do something is a kind of idolatry. And ultimately, it's enslaved. Ultimately, you are enslaved to your feelings about your relationship with God. And Paul says, but now that you know God, no, 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 no. Rather, now that God knows you. You see, our relationship with God and the strength of that relationship is not based on our fickle emotions and how we feel towards God, but rather about how God feels towards us. Your salvation is not based on how well you know God, but on how well God knows you. Our assurance, our assurance isn't about what we feel, but it's about what God feels. And and listen, God feels love towards you. You want to know how God feels towards you? God looks at his people and notices that one is missing. And he goes out and he searches for that one and when he finds the one, he takes it, lifts it up, puts it on his shoulder, takes them home to a celebration. That's how God feels about you. You want to know how God feels about you? God is the father whose son spit in his face, demands his inheritance, essentially saying to the father, I wish that you were dead, and leaves with the money, leaving behind his father's household, his father's community, and his father's faith, his religion, and goes off and squanders that money. And the father continues every day to go out to look over the road to see if that son comes home. And when the son does, the father gathers up his robe and takes off running, brings shame upon himself because respected men do not run. But he runs to his son who has disgraced him, throws his arms around him, lavishes him with kisses, and then puts his signet ring on his son's finger, welcoming home before the son ever apologizes. That's how God feels about you. Do you want to know how God feels about you? God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a life that fulfilled the law, went to the cross as a lamb led to the slaughter, and on the cross, in deep agony, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is how God feels about you. You want to know how God feels about you? He says, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a banquet table. But in my absence, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live in and among you and all of you so that my presence might always be with you. That's how God feels about you. 
You want to know how God feels about you? He says, I've got a family and you are an heir in it. You're a son, you're a daughter, you belong. That's how God feels about you. You want to know how God feels about you? I mean, we can just sum this up in one verse. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not die but have eternal life. For God so loved. That's how God feels about you. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter if you're adhering to the law. Those things are important. Yes, we don't just throw them away, but but that's not what God bases his love off. God's love is based on God's knowledge of you, and God knows every hair on your head. God watches over you as he watches for the sparrow out in the field. God clothes you and will provide for you the way that he does for the lilies of the field. That's how God feels about you. And recognizing that and living in that and and, and, and knowing that, not just in the intellectual sense, but knowing that, that's, that's where freedom is found. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that your love, your love is not something that can be escaped. So whether whether you go to the highest mountaintop or the lowest depth of the ocean, you are there and your love still surrounds us. We give you thanks that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Not even our sin. In fact, it's right there that you meet us. It's in the midst of our sin that you call us and say, come, come home, daughter. Come home, son. I know you and I love you. May the gift of that grace wash over us. May it transform us. May it give us freedom and find rest for our souls. Because we, in the assurance of our salvation, is wrapped up in your knowledge of us. We give you thanks. Christ our Lord. Amen.